Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's yours, it's the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank Stevie Wonder for writing and performing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. You are invited to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. Um, all you have to do is is search for Stick to Wrestling and ask to be put, put in, and you're in. I just put up a really cool picture of Bret Hart and six of the four horsemen. Uh, today is July 30th, and they're doing that thing in, in Nashville for Ric Flair, and Bret went down for it. Wow, good for him. Uh, also, you want to follow me on Twitter? Just uh, search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you would like to donate to this free and commercial-free uh, podcast, uh, just hit PayPal and donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. Today, we are going to celebrate the 25th anniversary of SummerSlam 1997. Who better to do it with than popular guest Brett Nicholas? Brent, thank you for coming back. Oh, always a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to be here. And also, I want to thank our studio audience for coming out and being part of Stick to Wrestling. Guys, thanks for coming down to Nashville, New Hampshire and being part of it. Let's hear it for you guys. All right. You're definitely, you're welcome. Brett, let's talk about uh, SummerSlam 1997. WWF is having some financial issues. They're they're getting hotter. They're way hotter than they were at this point in '97 than they were in '96. But they they've been on their rear end for about five years now. Uh, it, they're they're making a comeback. But WCW is clearly the number one wrestling company. And recently, the, the WWF stopped doing live Raws every Monday. And to save about twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a week, which is nothing now. Yeah, it's it's interesting at this perspective because a lot of people think back fondly upon this era, you know, the whole rise of Austin, the Hart Foundation. But yeah, they were really not doing very well. And you saw some cost cutting measures here and there which is kind of how Vince got away with telling Brett that, uh, hey, I'm not going to pay you. They, they kind of went in line with that. So, <laughs> You know, that that's its own show. But, I mean, what, what I mean, talking about comedy. Hey, Brett, I'm going to breach your contract, and therefore I don't have to live up to the, live up to the deal. Like, what the hell? Well, the, joy, the joys of knowing that Brett probably wouldn't take him to court. That That's really what it came down to, is Brett could have sat out and said, hey, you know, we'll go to court. But he... He played Brett's bluff, which was Brett would just go to WCW, and that's what happened. And the rest is history because it ended up making Mr. McMahon and making him a whole lot of money that he could later pay his hush money to women that he was sexually harassing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good old Vince. We, you know, this is our first show <laughs> since Vince announced his retirement from pro wrestling, and I mean, I think he's gone for good. I think the retirement is real. And I mean, talk about the end of an era, almost 40 years to the day he took over. 
Me, I, I too think this is it. I think this is way too deep. I mean, you go public, which they did many years ago, and you get into the whole fact that you had you do have a board of directors to answer to, even if you own the majority of the shares. And there's only so much that you can do. And him going away is is the best thing for them now. And I honestly think we may see a sale to uh, NBC, Peacock, Comcast, whatever you want to call it these days. Um, eventually in the next year or two. I agree. I've been saying for about a year or two that the WWF was going to get sold. I thought in at this point in 2020, I would be like, yeah, I, it will be sold by August 2022. And it still hasn't happened. But I think it is it is imminent that the WWF or WWE will be sold. My guess is, is it's going to Fox, but I could be wrong. Either way, it makes more sense for their TV partners to just buy it than to keep paying them massive rights fees. You might as well just have the whole package. That's actually a really good point. You you know what? You just talked me into it. Now I think Peacock or NBC is the favorite. You know, watching this show, and I I reviewed it, I I think I watched it for the first time since it originally aired a couple of days ago. And it kind of freaked me out because it's 25 years ago. This seems kind of like the new stuff to me still. It isn't. This is closer to the very beginning of me being a wrestling fan in 1976 than it is right now, 25 years ago. It's a long time, man. Yeah, it's one of those things where we all realize how old we are when we compare dates to what seems like something really old, and it's it, it's not as old as you, you think compared to some, some other things. But it's... To me, it seemed really kind of different from a uh, production standpoint, simply because there were, it looked different. There were so many signs. The crowd was really hot. You do not see that at a WWE show much anymore. No, not at all. I saw something on Twitter where the McMahons were having an argument in the ring, and all of a sudden the Rock's music starts to play, and the place goes nuts nuts every single person in that arena got up out of their seats we're talking like eighteen thousand people everyone had a sign i mean i don't think i don't think those days are coming back to be honest with you no no i don't and i don't know what the the reason is i mean you can watch the old matches from the von erickson the old wwf matches and fans would go crazy for the babyface making an attempt at a comeback and a rest hold there just was a a different um what's the word i'm looking for attachment to to what was going on in match they were paying a, a, a different amount of attention now they pop for the entrance they pop for the finish they maybe pop for a spot or two but that's about it a lot of a lot of times they just you're going to hear dead air from the crowd for a good portion of the match. You know, it's been that way for a while, though. I remember in 91 going to a WWF taping in Portland, Maine, and just noticing that the fans were, you know, it was parents and their kids for the most part, and the people would pop for the entrances, they'd pop for the big stars, and when the wrestling started, everyone went to sleep, and then everyone woke up again when the finisher happened. I was like, wow, we're, we're there. Yeah, and you saw that with this show a little bit. I don't know how much you kind of paid attention to the crowd, but I'd, I'd seen this show a few times, so I was kind of looking at some peripheral stuff as well as the matches. And man, do those fans pay more attention to be even making sure they were on camera and their silly little signs were on there yeah. than the matches sometimes. Yeah, it was it was an interesting pay per view. But let's they they start off now. 
I talk maybe too much about how much the the wrestling business had changed. Uh, Growing up, I actually looked this up. There were only six cage matches in the Boston Garden the entire decade of the 80s. And at that time, the cage match felt like the ultimate uh, almost Roman gladiator type match where these two guys hate each other so much that they're going to put themselves in a cage and try to kill each other. Right now we have a cage match as the opener, something that was unthinkable at one point triple H against mankind. And I mean, you know, again, the business is changing as it needs to, but a cage match in the opener that blew me away. It did. I mean, it was a blow-off match to a long-term feud. But however, in a lot of ways, it didn't feel that much of a blow-off match. And you saw, this was one of the last appearances of the big blue cage type. And it really was evident that they needed the big blue cage because obviously China was involved in it just constantly. Um, And pre-plastic surgery, China at that kind of, Funny how different she she looked. May she rest in peace. But um, yeah, the, the, there wasn't a lot of heat as you would think of for a cage match. There was there was some spots, but it wasn't like Bruno and Zabisco. It wasn't Snooka Morocco. There wasn't that kind of just absolute feel of hatred in that cage. No, there wasn't. It wasn't superheated. And let, let's talk about a little bit about Nashua, New Hampshire's own China slash Joni Lawler, who I've met scores of people in the wrestling business, but I've never met her. She looked like something. I mean, she looked incredible. She was this female bodybuilder with a really kind of a tough look about her. And she was a monster. And they were it was almost like they were trying to figure out what to do with her. And they never really could. It did add to Triple H, though. It did. did. He was kind of a snooty, paint-by-numbers character. He added China, and it really increased his heat. It got him to that next level. Um, She was different. Um, She was the first female to really interact with the male talent. Sherry Martell did a little bit. Um, but China was actually punching guys. She wasn't just hitting people with her shoe from behind or her purse. You know, she was grabbing people, and people brought, bought her as a legitimate threat to most of those um, men. As a matter of fact, Mick Foley in his book points out, and I'm going to refer to Foley's book a couple times in this show, um, but he he talked about the fact that he was the first wrestler that let China get physical with him. And that kind of opened up the floodgates for her character to become more of a threat to other people, whether it was next Sergeant Slaughter to even to the point where she was wrestling against Jericho and Bob Hawley and and whatnot for the Intercontinental title. You know, you mentioned Mick Foley's book, which I haven't read for a while. It remains my favorite wrestling book of all time. Mick Foley's first book, I should emphasize. If you haven't read that book, go out and grab it. It is an absolute masterpiece. Triple H. Now, the WWF went, I mean, they went crazy recruiting this guy from WCW. Vince McMahon supposedly wanted him and got him. And at this point, Triple H really feels like a guy who is absolutely being forced down our throats. I'm not saying he wasn't talented, but I mean, he he, he was getting an Eric Watts type push at this point. There's people that would say that never really went away. 
There are people who will say that. But I think he was right on the cusp of something here because what came in the next few weeks after this was the launch of DX, which is really where Triple H suddenly got to the next level and started being seen as more of a a major player. But even then, it took until the uh, marriage to Stephanie McMahon to really launch him as a guy that the fans accepted as a main event player. Even in the DX days, they were still kind of a mid-card, very, very popular, but still kind of a mid-card act um, after Shawn Michaels left. And before, when it was Shawn and Triple H, obviously there was a very much a hierarchy. Shawn was the star, Triple H was the side piece. So uh, it's Triple H has always suffered from from being seen as the the fallback position to the bigger stars, whether it was Rock, Austin, Undertaker, Cena, Orton, all through the years. And I don't think a lot of fans have ever perceived him as the guy at any moment outside of that run in, in 2000 where he first was doing the McMahon-Helmsley era um, angle. I mean, you know, the old expression about the WWF, especially around this point, is if they want to get you over, they're going to either get you over or they're going to die trying. And I give him credit. He (laughs) got over. And you're right. You know, they put him out there every week. It was Triple H, China, and Shawn Michaels. And Triple H, he, he eventually got the rub. But right now, it's like, okay, you know, this guy, we're being force fed this person, it felt like to me. Yes, and a lot of people will tell you the same thing that 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 was it was that case. Um, th- this was an interesting match though because it was a blow off match, and they did a nice tease. It wasn't a great match by any means, but it was okay. And they did do a nice tease where you thought, "Oh, geez, Mick Foley's going up to the top rope, and he's going to do the Snuka uh, homage." Um, elbow not a splash and he's that's going to cost him the match but then they gave him the win which i thought was kind of interesting because the way things are booked these days i bet you they wouldn't have given him the win because so often the baby faces end up looking like morons and so unfortunately here was a case where yeah here was a case where he did do his big uh call back to snooka moment but then still got the win in the end but they teased the fans where the fans were like oh no he's gonna cost himself this match and i thought that was kind of a neat little trick i I thought so too um you know it's it's right across the river from new york and people still remember jimmy snooka and they were chanting superfly snooper superfly at Cactus. Now, and this is before Cactus's book came out. I had no idea he was in the front row for the Morocco Snooker Cage match. But he, even with that, it was a real. I thought it was a really cool spot. It was. It was. And I can't remember the TV well enough to know if they had talked about that on TV. I know they had brought his dude love character out with him referring to. They'd shown a little video of him being dude love as a teenager, young adult. And they'd referred to kind of him growing up, but I don't know if they ever specifically referred to him hitchhiking to see that snooker match like he talks about in his book. I, I just didn't watch that uh, run up on TV for 
however many years it's been, 25 yeah. years. And even back then, I would record Raw and just fast forward to the stuff I wanted to watch. So maybe they mentioned it. I had no idea. So overall, I thought this was a good match, but not a great match. What did you think, Brett? Exactly. Same thing. It was two very um, strong workers that uh, know how to put together a good match. Not as much heat as you would expect. Um, a little bit of a groaning at the China reaching through the cage bits over and over again. And then you find yourself going, well, if she can reach through here, why didn't she reach through here? You know, never use logic with wrestling. Yeah. And um, but overall, yeah, solid, solid work by a couple of professionals and got the crowd off to a nice start because their baby face won. And you got to see dude love do his little foot thing at the end. It, it, I, that's exactly what I thought. It was a, a good, solid match. Nothing to complain about. Next, we have a segment with then New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, who Brent, I mean, not not to go down a political road, but this event took place August third, nineteen ninety seven. If you had asked me on August second, nineteen ninety seven, who do you think is going to be president after Clinton? I And I haven't thought of Christine Todd Whitman in years. Her name has not gone between my ears in at least five years. But that's how big, uh, big a political star she was. Like I said, I thought she was going to be the next president, and she kind of faded away. Yeah, Gorilla even said that. I mean, I know it was pandering, you know, she's going to be the next president, but Gorilla Monsoon said that in their little segment. Oh, there, there were a lot of boos. I did. I, I don't think it's a politician appearing in front of a crowd ever can get away from some boos. But uh, I remember her being a big deal, too. Obviously, I was across the country in California at the time, but um, I, I, being somebody who got my degree in political science, am a very political person. So um, I... Uh, was very familiar with her and I saw a big future for her as well, but uh, she never ended up even that I remember being a serious contender for president. And then no, it it just never uh, happened. George W. Um, Bush came along. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But like I said, it was just weird. I was like, wow, Christine Todd Whitman used to be such a big deal. But anyway, and that, that segment took a while by the way, and they gave her a championship belt as the champion of tax cutters. But anyway, uh, Brian Pillman against Goldust slash Dustin Rhodes. Brent, coming in, you'd think this would have been a good match. And in my opinion, it was not. They had a stipulation where if Brian Pillman lost, he had to wear a dress. And they did what I thought was a neat little spot where they had a mannequin at ringside wearing the dress that, that Pillman eventually had to wear. What did you, what did you think of this whole schmoz? This was not a, a great match at all. Um, Pillman was pretty shot athletically at this point, which was such a shame because he was so good when he was younger. That's in true. WCW. Um, I didn't think they messed particularly well. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but the finish even seemed slightly botched. Like it, it just it seemed awkward. Um, he went for a sunset flip and it didn't work. And then he like fought to the ropes where Marlena didn't hit him with the purse. And it didn't seem like that was quite how it was supposed to work. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed awkward to me. Um, the other thing that I thought was amusing was, uh, 
how uh, I think it was JR, but it might have been Vince, referred to uh, Gold Dust as the once controversial Gold Dust. I was like, yeah, amazing how he's not controversial as soon as you bring out the woman and say he's heterosexual. But uh, <laughs> he was uh, quite the controversial person um, before before that time. And then here he is, the baby face, which was a little weird um dynamic um pillman was all character at this point he he just with the the injuries that he had had uh in the car accident in his career he just couldn't bring it in the ring anymore no uh pillman i mean it it, it, i think it even started before the car accident that he was just you know not the same athletically he had a bunch of injuries he was getting a little bit older and then the car wreck came and my, if I recall correctly, he had to have his ankle fused, which you're not going to be very mobile after something like that. Not only fused, but if I remember correctly, I had to break it like two or three times to get it quite right. Oh, and man. that's a big reason why he was uh, sadly got so hooked on painkillers. Uh, in Bret Hart's book, he talks about that, how Pillman, just to get out to the ring, was just on a ton of painkillers. And of course, we know a month later how that worked out for him yeah and you know what just today i was thinking about i haven't read brett's book in like 10 years because i had it in the trunk of my car and it was there for like eight months and of course the book is no longer (laughs) usable after six months in a car in new hampshire so i got to get on uh, amazon or or whatever and get another copy of that because that was another really good book uh anyway the legion of doom against the godwins uh brent right now to me 25 years ago, I remember looking at this and being like, these guys are like breathing parachute pants. They are just a relic from the 80s. Yeah, both of them were between between the road warriors being has beens and the Godwins running around with a Confederate flag. Oh, yeah, um, it, it was it was it, it was different. Um, as an aside, though, I did get a kick out of the fact that uh, Vince uh, called the uh, match raw boned, and I thought, hey, maybe that's where John stole that from. Uh, but, it is. Uh, <laughs> He's been using raw bones <laughs> since the seventies. Raw bone, sweet Hanson. The, the most interesting in this match was that Lou Albano was in the front row. It's like, hey, I wonder if that's the last time we saw Lou Albano on WWF TV. Um, but it was just a, it was a paint by numbers formula type tag match. Road Warriors did their little bit. Animal sold for a bit. Hawk got the hot tag. Hawk didn't sell for any. And then Doomsday Device match over. Yeah, Hawk blew up really early in this match. And, you know, not to, I don't know. I mean, I remember WrestleMania, uh, the next WrestleMania, I think it was 13 was the 98 WrestleMania 14. Okay. 14, which I should have gone to cause it was in Boston, but I, for whatever reason I didn't. And they paired the LOD with Sonny. And I was just like this, you guys are blowing. I want to say blowing Sonny. You guys are not using Sonny correctly. <laughs> <laughs> it was an honest to God slip. Like you're, you're wasting her with these two. They were wasting her with the body Donna's. She was obviously the star in the ring. And, you know, you just can't, even though Chris Candido was her real life boyfriend, it's like, you know, Chris, you're not a big enough star for your valet. Sorry. And it felt like, it felt like that with Sonny with the LOD. I mean, these guys were, it felt like they were finished and <laughs> it, it got worse from there. But anyway, any thoughts on the LOD in 97, Brett? 
I, I just, it, it's a shame that they burnt out so quick because I actually, the very first VHS tape I ever bought was way back in, I don't know, 85, 86, um, Toys R Us. I, birthday money, I found a Road Warriors little tape. I had some AWA matches. I remember that. Yeah. First, it had like three matches on. It was a little 30 minute tape, but I thought the Road Warriors were just, I'm, you're 12 years old. What are you going to think? The Road Warriors were the coolest thing ever. So I bought that tape and that was, so seeing them later, whether it's with Rocco the dummy or being past their prime here and just not being able to bring it in quite the same way was a little sad. Um, they were one of the, my first childhood favorites that really got to that point where they just didn't have it anymore. I remember in 1983, the Road Warriors, when they first got to WCW, had kind of a village people feel to them. Uh, they were wearing little shorts and you know leather vests. And then one day, out of nowhere, they just turn on Paul Ellering for no reason. They beat the crap out of him. Then they come out the next week with the Mohawks and the face paint. And I was just like, oh, my God, look at these guys. They're going to be superstars. And for once, I was right. Yeah, I didn't see him. I mean, I've seen the pictures, but I didn't see him early enough in the village people stuff because I started watching in 84. So I only saw them as the uh, the cool road warriors after the Georgia Legion of Doom type stuff and and that area. I only saw them once they got to the AWA, once they came to Crockett. Yeah, that was definitely cool road warriors. And man, were, were they photogenic? They were on the cover of after, after magazines left and right. All right. Now, what comes next? And this is me taking notes from like 48 hours ago. Disastrous live segment. That was the only way I could put it. They had this idea where they were going to call people who were watching the event as part of some potential million-dollar giveaway, which they never really explained. I have no idea what was going on here. But they had Sonny and Sable out there. Sonny is sticking her implants into Todd Pettengill's face. It was insane. It was a complete waste of I, I. I actually timed it. It was over eight minutes. It felt like over 80 minutes and it absolutely killed. It was eight and a half minutes and it killed the live crowd dead. And it was just an awful television segment. Brett, any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I, I hope they got a whole lot of money from discovery zone because that was the sponsor because that was, that was terrible. And it, it got me thinking about how they do those kind of uh, endorsement deals now where they actually intertwine when they're getting paid by somebody, whether that's that Brock movie with the egg or doing zombies getting involved in a match. They actually intertwine the sponsorship deals with the matches. And I don't know which is worse. You know, having it segregated into eight terrible minutes like this where they're getting disconnected phone numbers and people not answering or my personal favorite. Are you watching SummerSlam? No. <laughs> so uh, they uh, I, I don't know which is worse, having zombies involved in a match or having a segregated segment like this. But either way, it's just WWF cashing in on some sponsorship money and wasting our time. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's live TV, and you have to be careful. Uh, things really can go wrong on live TV, and this was a case where everything just went wrong. It was one of the worst segments I've ever seen. Not worse, not bad as far as something you can laugh at. It's just like it was difficult to sit through. It, it was, and it's, it's it was just a real real killer in the pay-per-view. It just it dragged down any momentum they had. The crowd got bored. Just just very ill-advised. Not a good idea. All right, next we have Ken Shamrock against the British Bulldog. Brent, I thought Ken Shamrock was going to be huge in the WWF, and we're talking like I had visions of a long-term Ken Shamrock versus Steve Austin feud uh, because I thought he was going to be at that level, and it just it just never happened for him. And in this, I actually had to look up how old he was because I'm like, you know, is this dude in his, in his early forties? No, he's only thirty three, but he looks he looks older than that. Yeah, I never, I, I don't know the details behind Shamrock backstage like I do some of the other guys. So I don't know if it had to do with attitude problems, interest, what, but I kind of felt the same way. I thought he was going to be a bigger star. Um, the fans certainly reacted to him well. They really got excited. You heard the big pops when he would you know, go insane and lose his cool and everything, but it just didn't seem to happen for them. As a side back to the sponsorship thing, instead of doing the Discovery Zone million dollar giveaway, they should have just had Purina or somebody sponsor this match. They could have made the same money and saved eight minutes. Good point. I mean, yeah, they made the uh, they did an angle where British Bulldog poured dog food on Shamrock on Raw, and then he comes out. British Bulldog comes out with another can of dog food, and Shamrock does his "Oh my God, I've snapped" routine. Maybe that had something to do with him not getting over because he did that way too often. He did. He had a couple go to things. He had the snap thing, and it seemed like every match he would bite down on his little blood pack it in his mouth and do the internal bleeding thing um which he did in this match of course so maybe that was it but he definitely was a little different i don't think the wwf knew how to book a ufc guy though quite the way they later learned to do with brock lesnar um as as somebody who brings that mma background into it and how to book around that and kind of treat them like a killer um, with Shamrock, I don't know that they ever figured that the MMA part out. Instead, they just booked him as a psycho who occasionally would lose his mind and you couldn't do anything and he would hurt referees and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I thought when the WWF signed Shamrock, I thought they were going to kind of go in a direction where they're making things look like a little bit of a shoot. And in his matches, you kind of some people would kind of wonder, okay, is this guy real? Is this match real? And no, the real future was the people's elbow. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was it was. It was different. They just didn't know what to do with him in, in, in that respect, and and that's a shame. I would say he's almost ahead of his time in in that regard. Um, but this match was okay. Um, dog food, probably a dumb stipulation. But and the other thing that had me wondering about is the bulldog hit Shamrock with the dog food. And that was a DQ when he'd been using the steel steps and the barriers and yeah, stuff. Really. Why was the dog food the one step too far for the, 
the ref. Again, you don't want to use logic in pro wrestling, but it was one of those things that hit me. It was like, no, oh, okay, can of dog food. That's the DQ. Yeah, here. really. I, I mean, I, I thought the same thing about the match that it seems like you did. It was an okay match. It wasn't terrible. It was okay, but it certainly wasn't good. And the other thing that hit me about it, and if I didn't know what I knew about Bret Hart and how he felt about the booking in the months to come, it wouldn't have stood out to me so much because there's a pay-per-view that they referred to in this match called One Night Only, which was their first UK-only pay-per-view. And on that pay-per-view, um, Shawn Michaels cheated a ton to beat the British Bulldog. And then after the match, he and Triple H beat down the Bulldog and Bret Hart complained vehemently in his book about how dumb the Hart Foundation looked because they never came out to make the save until way too long. And during the match, they'd let all this cheating go on and hadn't done anything. I kind of had the same thought on this one. Shamrock's going crazy on the Bulldog. Where's the Hart Foundation? Why aren't they coming out to help him? That's actually a good point. I, I did not think of that while I was watching this match, but you're right. I mean, he's part of the Hart, Hart Foundation. You'd think they would have his back. Yeah, and that's that's where Brett kind of, I remember three weeks before this show, and we'll get in more of this later, but three weeks before this show was when Vince first brought up the idea to Brett that, hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay you. I'm going to have to pay you a bunch of your money on the back end. He hadn't officially breached his contract. He hadn't officially said, I'm not going to pay you, but he brought up the subject. So when I watch this, when I watch everything going forward, I'm looking through the lens of, is this Vince trying to take down the credibility of Bret Hart, to take down the Hart Foundation, make them not integral to the show like it once was. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I'm looking at is here's two situations on pay-per-views in a row, SummerSlam 1-9 only, where the Hart Foundation is made to look dumb. Yeah, and you're right. I know at this point there was some talk of, you know, Vince just letting Bret Hart go to WCW. And, you know, the, the contract Bret signed was very backloaded. Vince was going to get Bret at a bargain in 1996-1997 and he was going to kind of be being paid paying the interest in like 2014-2015 and you know so basically Brett was working for a lot less than he was worth at this point. Yeah, he was working uh he signed for $750,000 in 1997 which he could have gone to WCW um, when he re-signed with WCW in the fall of 96, he could have taken $2 million, easy. And But he chose this because after three years, I think it was, um, Vince kept, was going to keep paying him 500000 And after 10 years, he was going to keep paying him 250000 And I mean, long after Brett was going to be retired and probably just show up and do a promo once in a while or an autograph signing, Vince was still going to be throwing him you know, six figures for 20 years. So that's that's why Brett took this deal out of loyalty to Vince and also out of the fact that he rightfully, as we later saw, thought he would be booked better in WWF. But he did take a much, much lower deal to stay with WWF because he was going to get paid for 20 years on it, long past the point where he was even going to be wrestling. Way long past the point. They figured three to five years at the most they had left in Bret Hart, and then he was going to get paid you know, six figures to sit at home and be a goodwill ambassador to the WWF, and you know, he never saw that particular money. So here we are, and I am putting in my notes, I'm like, okay, 
we need a good match now. We've had three, you know, very middling matches in a row with and the disastrous live segment. And we have Los Bariquas against the Disciples <laughs> of the Ac- Apocalypse in an eight-man tag. And I'm like, okay, if you have an eight-man tag and you keep it at like 10 minutes, it should be nonstop action. You've got eight guys. All they need to do is put in like two minutes of their best stuff each, and that's all we need. And they couldn't even get that accomplished. They they tried to make this a uh, like a brawl type match, and it was a bad brawl. It was a sloppy brawl. Brett, what did you think? It was just terrible. First of all, nobody bought Los Bariquas as real threats. I mean, Savio Vega was their by far biggest name as a mid-carder. I don't even know that a lot of fans could tell you who the other three guys were. If they could, they'd tell you the one was Miguel Perez because he was really hairy. Um, so that, that was, I, to this, I didn't know who the other two were until the commentary mentioned that one was Jose Estrada Jr. And he was a second generation guy. Um, their look was dorky. Um, and the DOA was terrible workers too. I mean, there was not a, one of those guys who was anything but a big slug that needed somebody like a Shawn Michaels or a Bret Hart bouncing off of them for, uh, the match to make them look competent. And so you put those together. It's not that the Los Barricos guys were bad workers, but they were working with bad workers and they were the ones with no heat. And then you throw the nation of domination just coming down there. And it, it was just a cluster. It really was. And I mean, I think too, it kind of sends a bad message. Like you've got the biker gang and the Puerto Rican guys gang, and then you have the NOD come out. And it's like, you know, this is not something I wanted to see. It felt like Vince Russo just uh, watched the Warriors movie and came up with this idea because you're right. Now, to me, the four, all, all four guys in the match just looked like. Uh, I don't know. They, they looked like they belonged in the background. It was like four guys all looking the same, all doing the same stuff. I did not like it at all. No, there was there was nothing of value in this match. The guys in the Nation of Domination were much bigger stars. But even then, at this point before The Rock had joined, you have Ahmed Johnson going in and out, feuding one week. The next week, he's back in the Nation of Domination. I don't believe Mark Henry was down there with him either. Um, so it was D'Lo Brown, uh, Kama, Mustafa, Farouk, and Ahmed Johnson. But at least you knew who Ahmed and Farouk were at that point, as opposed to the interchangeable eight guys that were in the ring. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole gimmick just had go-away heat with me. I did know someone who attended this show live. At the end of the match, you had Crush, one of the biker gang guys, riding around on his bike like he's trying to run someone over. And the guy who went to the show swore up and down that live, it was, it was one of the wildest things he'd ever seen. But it didn't come across that way on TV. It looked like a guy who was, who was riding around trying to look like he was trying to run people over, but going way out of his way to make sure that didn't happen. No, I didn't come across well on TV. All right. Yeah, just and I, in my notes, this is a 
capital letters, bad show right now. At the time, I was wondering if the WWF could compete with Steve Austin. And of course, this is when the show starts to turn around. Uh, It's Steve Austin versus Owen Hart in a very memorable match. Austin would have to kiss Owen Hart's ass if he lost the match. And I love how Owen was being used here, Brett. It was like he's he's the little brother who's trying to get out of that shadow. And I like that angle, that persona. Yeah, it was a nice callback to when Brett and Owen were against each other and Owen was so jealous and he said he was going to do everything that Brett had done. Well, here he is. And the announcers even referred to it. Here he is trying to beat Austin because Brett had beat Austin a couple times. So it was a nice callback to that, a rare time with the WWF at this point where they did that kind of long-term callback thinking. Um, But this this was a solid match before the infamous finish. Um, You saw some brawling by Austin early on because it fit the character, but then you also saw some technical wrestling that, probably was the last time you would see because of the finish. And when the finish came down, then you had the awful school by, by Owen to get the loss. And it it reminded me funny enough, and this is a back to the Foley book of a line that he had said, Arn Anderson gave him when Foley was wrestling uh, Ron Simmons and Simmons was a champ. Foley joked, Hey, I could be champ tonight. And Arn Anderson had said, Mick, if he has a heart attack in the middle of the ring, you will roll him over on top of you and let him get a three count on you. (laughs) And so that reminded me of this situation. That reminded me of this situation with Owen where he was like, I am not supposed to win this match. I have got to find a way to let Austin pin me. And so that's what they did, even if it came down looking as one of the absolute worst finishes of all time. I remember watching it live and thinking, you know, I've seen stiff spots. And I remember thinking, wow, that was a pretty brutal pile driver. And then you see the look on Owen's face. By the way, that it, I want to backtrack a little bit. It really was a good match until that spot happened. And then I see that like the referee is talking to Austin, and Austin's not getting up. And I see the look on Owen's face, and I'm like, oh, no. Something just went terribly wrong. Because like I said, watching it live, I was like, wow, Austin just landed right on his head. And you know what's interesting about it is you actually didn't get the really good camera angle that you would see the next night or whenever and on all the recaps since. Because I don't know if they didn't feel comfortable showing it until they knew more about Austin's future or if they didn't have it that night. But it did stick out that I've seen angles where you can flat out see Austin's head well below Owen's legs and just slam into the mat. Whereas you didn't see that angle live or in replay here. But yes, you could tell that Austin was really messed up and Owen was stalling like crazy and they were trying to figure out what to do. And I I tell you, the toughness of Austin, I don't know how smart it was, but the toughness of Austin, even to lightly roll Owen up like that and then to walk out with the help of the refs was was just insane um, that he was that he was even able to do that. And nowadays they would not have let him no matter how tough he was. They would have made him go out on a stretcher with a neck collar, cervical collar. 
You know, not to be over, overly dramatic, but it really is true. When it comes to neck and spinal injuries, seconds count, okay? And I would have told you in 1997, and by the way, we got asked a question about this. We took some questions about SummerSlam 97, and we'll be getting to them, but I'll throw this one in now. Randy Funk asked, once Austin hurt his neck, what would have been a better finish for the Intercontinental Championship match? Was there a better way out of that match than the worst-looking schoolboy in history? Yeah, you just stop the match, and you drop the stipulation, and you tell Austin, get on the stretcher. You don't keep the cameras focused on him as he's practically being dragged to the back by the referees for god's sake just you know even put him in a, a portable chair just you know to get him out of there don't make him walk it was ridiculous yeah, that, that's just it shows you the big difference between back then and now um i know the thought process was oh my gosh if he loses he has to kiss owen's ass i get that but yeah, you it wouldn't matter what the stipulation was today. If that spot happened, that match ends immediately. Owen Hart backs up, the medical team comes out, and the crowd understands. I think the crowd would have understood in 1997, but that just wasn't where the business was. I, I agree with you. I was saying at that moment in 1997, you know, you, you go to bed not knowing how Austin's doing. I mean, okay, he's up, he's walking with help. That's a good sign, but it's like, you know, and you hate to be just thinking about dollars and cents, but I was like, man, if the WWF loses Steve Austin, they're going out of business. It was a, yeah, it was a big deal. And ironically, you could argue that him being more limited when he came back. And he was. To brawling. Yeah. Well, I'm not a yeah, but you could argue that that style that he had to adjust to fit the character better and made him even more popular. And also, you can argue that him having to take the time off from the ring and all he could do is go around stunning Vince McMahon and poor Jr., who didn't deserve it in the slightest. Um, they that that also was huge to increasing his popularity. That that made fans even hungrier for him when he got back into the ring finally. So there there was a silver lining in that respect. It was it was kind of like the the Mr. McMahon somehow coming out as the the biggest villain in the in wrestling from screwing over Bret Hart in Montreal. It was another one of those this might actually be a happy circumstance for the booking of the company having Austin go through this. Yeah, Raw in 1997 and 1998, it reminds me a little bit of the 2010 NFL season where they had NFL countdown before, you know, uh, before the one o'clock games. And they're either having a segment about Tim Tebow or they're or they're teasing a segment about Tim Tebow. That's what Raw was. Either Austin was out there or they were teasing, hey, Austin's going to be here. Yeah, and they sadly they hadn't they they don't realize today that they don't have an Austin, and they still do that a little bit where they focus on the same few people as if they have that same kind of magnetism that Austin did. We're going to open with this person, then we're going to revisit them a couple times during the show, and then they're going to have their big match at the end of the show. And I just don't think that that style's needed anymore because nobody, and not Roman Reigns, is, has that kind of charisma that Austin or even The Rock had to build an entire Raw around like that. 
my theory has been over the past five or ten years, and on some level this makes no sense, but bear with me. They don't want another Steve Austin. They don't want another Rock. They they want the WWE to be the star, and they only they only want guys like Roman Reigns to get to a certain level. And you know, if the company gets sold, that is something that. You know, hopefully the new ownership will get away from because the the business is best served when you have a Hulk Hogan, when you have a Steve Austin, when you have that number one guy that's that's a household name. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree 100 uh, percent. Not a lot to add to that. Um, I agree that uh, with that thing, I think that Vince McMahon got burned by Brock Lesnar leaving at one point and by Bobby Lashley leaving when he put a lot into both of them. And I think he got very reluctant to try and do that big push. And he wanted the brand to be bigger than the stars. And John Cena was the last guy that he really pushed as as the big guy and now it's just kind of like hey everybody's a superstar in wwe come watch us all yeah and i I get that there's a balance i get that you don't want to put too many eggs in one guy's basket because like i said earlier if austin had been seriously injured and did not come back i mean i think literally the wwe would be out of business and they would have been out of business for a long time now but thankfully that didn't happen and steve austin my God, he was such a, a mainstream star like we'd never seen before in wrestling. I mean, he was on the, you know, you go to a newsstand and the guy's on the cover of everything, including Rolling Stone, including TV Guide, Entertainment Weekly, etc. Yeah, it, there's nothing, there hasn't been anybody like him. Him him, and Hogan in the modern era are the two guys that were able to do that. You know, some people like to try and claim John Cena was, but John Cena only was doing that with corporate partnerships through WWE, not just because John Cena was a big star. And John Cena and The Rock both became bigger deals once they separated from the WWE and did the Hollywood thing, as opposed to being massive mega stars on their own with wrestling like Hogan and Austin. No, I think, and I love Cena, I love Roman Reigns, but they are huge steps back from Hogan, Austin, and The Rock. And again, I'm, I'm a big fan of both guys. You still see people on the inter- internet saying that, oh, Cena couldn't work or Reigns can't work. I don't know what, ma- I don't know what matches you guys are That's watching. Nonsense. It's nonsense. That's nonsense. Yeah. All right. Finally, we have the main event, Bret Hart versus The Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as as the referee. Uh, Shawn Michaels was as big a part of the match as either Bret Hart or The Undertaker. Uh, If Bret, Bret says if he does not win the title, he will never wrestle in the United States again. So there goes two matches where we absolutely know the finish coming in. We know all, Owen Hart's not kissing, or excuse me, Steve Austin's not kissing Owen Hart's ass, so we know he's winning the Intercontinental Championship, and we also know that there's no way Bret Hart isn't wrestling in the United States again, so Bret Hart is becoming the WWF champion. They did it in a good, creative way. Uh, Shawn Michaels goes to hit the Undertaker with a chair. He absolutely he accidentally hits Bret, and Undertaker wins the championship. Oh, excuse me, other way around. What am I talking about? Brett, <laughs> he goes to hit Brett with a chair, Undertaker moves, and Brett scores the pinfall. What do you th- what do you think, Brett? 
Yeah, I really like this match. You know, it's funny about it is early on in the match, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, eh, there's a lot of a lot of brawling, a lot of leg work, you know, it's just not picking up. But not thinking about how these are just two of the all time greatest professional wrestlers and you hit that 15 minute mark and it all starts to come together and everything starts to build on what you've seen before. And it's just by the end of it, you're on the edge of your seat, just thinking, wow, this is, this is fantastic, fantastic stuff. And that's, that's what two professionals like Brett and the undertaker can do. 1997 was really the first year that I think people started to recognize how good the undertaker was because he wasn't working with big slugs like Bundy and, uh, Yokozuna and Giant Gonzalez, like he had been stuck with for years. He wasn't fighting over dumb stolen urns, although there was that aspect of mankind. But the the mankind feud brought out the fact that this Undertaker guy could really wrestle. And then you add in the twist of this Kane storyline, which who knew that this tease of his brother Kane was going to turn into a character that would last for 20 years. So this match was industry changing in its own way, just as much as Austin hurting his neck. You had Shawn Michaels turning heel, becoming DX. You had the undertaker really changing his, his style um, and, and continuing to be seen as a really great worker and this was the last hurrah for Brett. He won the title, but he was quickly shunted into a go-nowhere feud with the Patriot. And the Hart Foundation was de-emphasized. And next thing you know, Brett's off to WCW. Yeah, and you make a good point. I mean, Brett Hart was so good. And we're used to him being so good to the point where you barely notice it. It's like, you know, uh, we're talking like, Willie Mays not winning the MVP every year or Mickey Mantle not winning the MVP every year. Michael Jordan, you you just almost stop appreciating them because you're used to it. But after not seeing this match for 25 years, I mean, it's like, wow, Brett is so phenomenal in the ring. Talk about a guy who knows what he's doing. And then you're right. You have the undertaker who we know is a good enough athlete to play uh, basketball at North Texas. I think it was, was it Houston? I don't know, but, But, I mean, he's an athlete, and now he's turning into a really good performer. I thought this was an excellent match. Yeah, it was. It was. And then the Michael stuff just added to it. Um, He he managed to combine doing all the right referee mannerisms with never stopping being Shawn Michaels. So um, kudos to him for really nailing his role as the special referee. Um, And kudos to, to Brett and Shawn for being professional in this when I think it was about a month or so or a month and a half earlier, they'd obviously had a big fight backstage and they were just in a very, very bad place where they did not like each other, but they came out and they did what they were going to do and they made it work in every way. I, this, this match to me was a home run. It just hit successfully on every level. And you're right, you know, Shawn Michaels is about to turn into, you know, we have in the WWF right now sort of a gray area between the heels and the babyfaces. Brett was clearly a heel. The Undertaker was clearly a babyface. Shawn, we're not so sure, but he is about to turn hardcore heel and with DX uh, in the coming weeks. Yes, and 
the the DX thing was was huge. It was absolutely instrumental in people as much as Austin to a to a degree thinking, wow, this WWF stuff is cool. Not just good, but cool. And, and that was huge. That was huge. The DX stuff pushed the envelope and it made people just talk about it. Oh gosh, did you hear what Sean and Triple H said last night? It was it was a big deal turning him heel like this. So uh this 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 was the start of that. Yeah, I, I look back on WWF in like, you know, this period, like summer fall nineteen eighty seven, and you'd have Shawn Michaels or Triple H or whoever do something outrageous or say something outrageous, and Vince McMahon would be like We'd like to apologize on behalf of the world wrestling. It's like, Vince, shut up. It's, it's all you. We know it. Don't be out there offering phony apologies. You know, it's funny you mentioned Vince McMahon because during this match, I had kind of an epiphany, if you will, that if you're familiar with AEW at all, there's similar roles in that Vince is now the and J, jr was the excalibur back then he knew the moves he knew the storylines and vince was the hype man who gave it importance because he was vince mcmahon and in aw now jr's moved into the vince role and excalibur is the guy who knows all the moves and stuff and i i, I kind of had this same thinking that i do about jr now that's like eh, maybe it's time to move them off into the sunset they've kind of overstayed their welcome and vince did move out of the booth very soon after this. I think Montreal was about the last time he was in the booth. You know why? I think you're right. I think Montreal was the last pay-per-view that he was in the booth. And you know what? I mean, he's got a show to run. I mean, I, I personally know it's hard to be on the mic and be running the show at the same time. Overall, Brett, what would force to choose? Would you give this show a thumbs up or a thumbs down? A slight thumbs up just because the last two matches were good. They were important. And then the opener was fun enough to nudge it to the, to the slight thumbs up. I agree that if you're forced to choose, I would give the show a thumbs up. It, to me, it's more a thumbs in the middle, but I'm not giving myself that option. You're right. The opener was really good. The last two matches were really good, but man, the middle of this card there was times it was painful to watch. I mean, and I remember I haven't seen the show in 25 years. I came into it remembering that I liked it. And then I watched it again. And I'm just like, there was a lot of garbage in there, man. And that's not that, uh, that's not that weird for WWF during the entire attitude area, uh, era there. You had those main events that everybody remembers. And then there was a lot of stuff in the middle that would, could be pretty rough. Um, you know, your Val Venuses and your um, Al Snows and, and that, your your hardcore Hollies, that kind of stuff. So, it, which is kind of funny, it was the opposite of WCW. If you remember, WCW was just putting on these great matches in the undercard. And then you get these main events with the geriatric brigade and they were just awful. So, it was kind of the flip side of WWF. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, with the old guys in WCW, at least they had big names and you're interested in what they're doing. And the middle of the card was good. Like the WWF, you're right. They were the the opposite of that. I mean, from a post-show 
standpoint, a lot of this was a little bit hard to watch. Uh, Steve Austin, as we mentioned, was never the same after this night. Uh, Pillman would be gone very soon. Uh, Owen didn't have much time left. British Bulldog died young. Both Road Warriors are gone. It's like, you know, the wrestling business from the 90s really took its toll on people. Yes, there there is a lot of a lot of collateral damage from this show. Guys who died young, people that had personal crises, even Sean and Brett who were still with us. Obviously, you had Montreal, Brett going unhappy, then he had a huge concussion and then a stroke. Sean Michaels went through some major um back problems and drug problems and thankfully found himself and seems to be in a much much better place as a person and um but yeah it was this was a show that had a gold dust had drug problems for years too um there was a lot of people with a lot of problems on this show or a lot of death you know I, I'm, I'm a little bit like paul Heyman. paul Heyman did not believe in drug testing i don't believe in drug testing I, for the most part i don't believe in a prove your innocence program but I remember uh, Paulie being in one of the newsletters saying, you know, I don't believe in drug testing. I don't think it's right. And then he refers to Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch. He's like, but those two are getting drug tested. And maybe, you know, maybe if if your company clearly has a problem, then maybe you should have a Prove Your Innocence program. I don't know. I mean, a, a lot was going on here. They, yeah, the WWF had ended their drug testing, I think, fairly shortly before this and it was a response to the fact that wcw wasn't drug testing and if you were going to compete you were going to let your guys use steroids you were going to let your guys smoke pot because some of these guys were not going to put up with it and they were going to go to the other company and you wanted your guys to look good and so both companies were just looking the other way on it and as a result of that there were some casualties there were some people that lost their lives because maybe the company could have done a better job of stepping in and getting them help. Yeah. I, I don't know what the answer to all of that is. It's a, a great big problem with no uh, cut and dry solution, but I mean, I might not have answers, but our listeners have questions. We took some questions about SummerSlam 87, 97. John Ware asked, he says, I've got nothing, but did we really need the European Championship and those gang wars? Jeez, yeah, John, I'm with you on the gang wars. Bad message sent. Just not a good idea. The European Championship, I think there was a time and place where they kind of needed it. They WWF was focused on overseas because they were doing way better uh, house show wise overseas than they were doing here. But at this point, Brett, I don't think they needed the European championship anymore. No, it was just another, another belt. And then they did actually add another one with the hardcore title. And the thing was at first, the European title was a glamor belt for the British bulldog to carry around when he's over there, because along with Brett and the undertaker, he was the biggest draw over there. And then you had the infamous one night only match where Sean decided he wanted to win and got Vince to let him have the European belt. And he did nothing with it. He just, it was a side prop that he never defended. And then he basically gave it to Triple H. Uh, So it lost all credibility very early on. And I think the only time it really got a little more credibility was when D'Lo Brown won it a while later 
and he had the intercontinental intercontinental title as well and was kind of doing this intercontinental euro combo thing and that that kind of heightened it up but it never really had the prestige of like a tv title ever did in wcw which is i think the closest comparison yeah, I, I always felt like the WWF in the 80s, they did it smart. They had a world champion, an intercontinental champion, and tag team champions. And and, and they had a, a women's championship, which was actually seldom defended. But that's it. I mean, it wasn't like WCW and a lot of other companies where, I mean, almost literally everyone everyone is a champion. Or I've, I've gone to NWA shows where literally every match was a title match and... If every match is a title match, title matches don't mean anything. Yeah, that's kind of what AEW is right now between Ring of Honor championships and trios belts and North Atlantic. It's everything. It's I mean, there's so many belts, you can't even keep track of them. Exactly. But much like WCW having a Florida heavyweight champion in 1987. Wet Western States title. <laughs> That that's one of the craziest wrestling stories ever. They they don't know what to do with Barry Windham, so they create a title for him. That's nuts. Yeah, well, that's that's what you do when you have a a young guy or a younger guy who's got all the talent in the world like Windham, and they're just trying to give him some importance. Just magically create a belt, I guess. It, it, it certainly was a choice. I don't know about a good one, but it was a choice. Oh. It was an interesting choice. It was the choice of someone who's running out of booking ideas. Justin Brown asks, if the goal of a stable is to eventually spin off new single stars, what does that make the WWF's gang wars of 1997 more successful than NWO? Um, you know, I don't know if that really was the goal. Um, it it almost was like, you know, these guys were in, in the gang, so to speak. They were nameless and faceless. I think WWF did a horrible job promoting this whole thing. I think it was a bad idea to begin with. The Nation of Domination, to Justin's point, the Nation of Domination was the one faction of the three that where they weren't nameless and faceless. So that's why I lost Ruikless and DOA. None of those guys went anywhere or did anything. Whereas with the nation of domination, especially once the rock hit, it became a vehicle to push these guys as individuals who just hung out. So it kind of transcended the gang war part, but while they were actually in the gang wars, they weren't, they weren't doing anything. And to his point too, I don't know that the goal of a faction is always to create single stars. I, I, so I don't, I don't know that that point is, is correct to begin with the NWO while it was a bunch of single stars already was such a huge moneymaker that you obviously can't compare that to the nation of domination, which nobody, even when the rock was in it, nobody was buying a ticket saying, Oh, I want to see a nation of domination match. No way. You know, it's funny how factions work. I mean, you had a faction like the Horsemen who just being in the Horsemen was going to get you over like crazy. I mean, Arn Anderson, really talented guy, but he would not have been what he became without being a, a member of the Four Horsemen. It was a spot that that everyone wanted. And but, you know. And and NWO early in the game was the same thing. You know, you were going to get over standing next to Hall, Hogan, and Nash. But yeah, later on, not so much. You got the uh, NWO B team with Stevie Ray, and uh, I can't even remember. Oh, 
yeah, Brian Adams, who was in DOA, funny enough. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was just a joke at that point. Um, how many guys, they couldn't even fit them all in the ring, I swear. No, and, you know, I mean, I don't claim to be a wrestling expert, but I knew while this was going on, hey, you are pouring water on this NWO thing by having so many people be in it. Here's a good question. I like this one. Dan Mikey Parker asks, why was Jim Nardhart fired before this pay-per-view? Do you remember this, Brent? Just because I went back to my Bret Hart book to reference a couple things around this he actually wasn't fired he according to brett mind you um there was a he was off tv because nightheart had signed some kind of contract with another fly-by-night wrestling group which for the life of me i can't figure out who he was talking about unless it was ecw but i don't think that was it and so okay do you know who it was uh, it was based out of a small town in upstate New York. It was called Universal Championship Wrestling. And Neidhart had signed an exclusive contract with these oh, people, goodness. whoever <laughs> they may be. And he, then he goes back to the WWF while still being under contract and not telling the WWF. And then this promotion brings it to the WWF's attention that, hey, you are using our exclusive talent. And they stopped using him until he could get everything settled with this small company out of upstate New York. I remember when this was going on, just being like, OK, Jim Neidhart needs management for real. I, I, I can't imagine what he was thinking, but. That's what that's what it was. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that makes sense. And with how it ended for him in WWF, it wouldn't have been the worst thing if he never came back after this. But instead, he got to come back and be humiliated by DX, and then kicked to the curb so he could go to WCW. Uh, that that's a show in and of itself that I'm going to try to refrain from having because I think everyone. Just so everyone knows, we are going to do a show on the 1997 Survivor Series, but I am going to do everything in my power to avoid talking about the Montreal Screwjob because that has been, that horse has been beaten to death. I mean, it, that's all there is to it. There's nothing left to say about this. All right. Brandon Rice asked, with Shawn Michaels being thrust into the main event as a guest referee, how was Brett and Shawn's relationship at this point? And Brett, before I kick it back over to you, I think that on August 3rd, 1997, they had kind of kissed and made up because if you watch the movie Wrestling with Shadows, you see Sean playing with Brett's kids and the two of them getting along just fine before the Montreal match. So I think at this moment, during this snapshot, uh, they were they were fine with each other. Yeah, they had come to a bit of a truce um, since the, the worst of it. However, that truce would get broken shortly after when both according to Brett Sean went and asked to beat the bulldog who had sadly told his dying sister that oh I'm guaranteeing I'm going to win it one night only so that of course did not go over well with Brett and then Brett also claims that Sean was running around the locker room now that he was a newly minted heel saying he wouldn't be doing jobs to anyone so this was a brief uh, thawing of the relationship, but it got frozen pretty quickly after this. 
a truce is a good word. It is the perfect word to describe this. Um, yeah, they right now things had cooled off between the two of them. But Shawn Michaels told Bret Hart directly, at least according to actually, I I think this was documented on Wrestling with Shadows or the filming thereof. That you know, Brett was you know sh- sitting down with Sean and Vince, and Brett's like, you know, well, we'll do business. We'll do what's best for business. And Sean looks at Brett and says, "Well, I'm not doing a job for you." And that kind of opened up the floodgates for Montreal. To be quite honest, it was just completely ridiculous. It didn't need to be said, and it just shows what. And I don't have a better term for it. A jerk, Sean was at that point, and it's a it's a good thing he got his life together and now is in a much better place because he was just a real jerk that would do stuff like that just to piss people off. It's true. I mean, we we hear the stories about mid-90s Shawn Michaels, how he would just go out of his way to make people's lives miserable. And then if they were to confront him, oh, look who's standing behind Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Yeah, and there was no need to. Okay, so if he's not going to job to Bret Hart, that's fine. Take it up with Vince in private. Why would you even say that? It's it was just to agitate. It was unneeded, and it was one hundred percent typical mid nineties. Sean, he was out of control. That's the, that's the only tag I I can use. He was out of control. Uh, let me see. Two more questions. Uh, one's rhetorical. So this is the last question. Why did they put the belt back on Brett? Uh, I want to get your analysis on this, Brett. Well, why did they put the title on Brett? when they're already having preliminary talks of Brett Knight might not be there anymore. You want the short answer or the long answer? The short, the short answer is, boy, you got me. It was really dumb. Um, the long answer is, I think at that time, the, the goal was to work towards this match with Shawn Michaels because Brett was seen as tradition. And Shawn, even though he was only, I don't know, what is he, two or three years younger? It's not a lot. Um, was seen as the the new generation, uh, the 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 degenerate, the way that the WWF was going. And in Vince's mind, he needed the traditionalist to lose to the new direction of the company. So that's where he was headed. The problem was, why would you say that to Brett and put him on his guard before you start down this path? It it, it boggles my mind and. For all of Vince's faults, it's one of the few times that I can say, boy, I don't know where Vince was thinking on this one. This was not a smart move. It wasn't. I know Jim Cornette has said this multiple times. I was saying this in 1997. If you're going to essentially tell Bret Hart to go to WCW, you know, please, we can't afford your contract. Just go. First, you take the title off of him, and then you tell him that you you want him to go. You don't tell him to go while he's still WCW champ, uh, WWF champion. That could have all been avoided. Um, I I'm kind of familiar with the direction the WWF wanted to go in. They wanted the title on Brett, and then they wanted him to lose to Shawn Michaels. But you don't tell him that until after he's lost to Shawn Michaels or at least given up the belt. So. Uh, I mean, I, you know, Matt, I don't, to be honest with you, I think they they kind of stuck with a storyline instead of dealing with a reality that, hey, if, if you're sending Brett to WCW, you don't want to put the belt on him. Even, even now, you don't want to put the belt on him 
in August. You you don't want him, you know, oh my God, he's in WWE. He's in WCW and he was just WWF champion. You want to de-emphasize him. I think there was some arrogance from Vince there too, that he couldn't fathom the idea that he couldn't fathom the idea that Brett would possibly balk at doing this. And it's like, you didn't think that when you told somebody you're not going to pay him and oh, by the way, go to the place that you didn't want to go to a year or before but now i want you to go there that they're not going to have a problem to then job to the guy who they've been fighting with for the past year who says he won't job to him i mean it was just it was arrogance and and to me it showed how little he thought of brett's um guts to just say no i'm not going to do it he just thought brett would just lay down and do it and that's not what happened obviously all right. I want to read a, a rhetorical question from Kevin Elias. Cause I, th- I think it's, yeah, I think this is a good one. Kevin Elias asked, do you think the unclaimed million dollars for the discovery zone contest they ran this night was eventually used to pay off a female employee that Vince sexually harassed? Good one, Kevin. And good one, Brett. You did a really good job on the show. You took a lot of what was in my head, like the word truth, like the word arrogance, um, and put it all on the table. And I really appreciate it. You're always well prepared. and You always put on a great show for stick to wrestling thank i, I want to thank you and i want to thank you on behalf of the audience well thank you i always appreciate being on it's always a pleasure and uh it's always fun going down memory lane with this stuff and watching shows you haven't seen in a long time okay i want to once again thank brett nicholas who always does a fantastic job here on stick to wrestling he really works hard and researches and he's always very prepared thank you brett um before i go i want to share a little personal information with you guys I am hiring a detective agency, and these guys are hardcore, man. It is a full-service agency with nationwide resources. They deal with investigations, surveillance, background checks. They can help if you need to locate a delinquent tenant. Uh, They look for people who are wanted by law enforcement, those hiring from creditors. Uh, They uncover insurance fraud. They do forensic accounting, and they'll help you find someone living off the grid. Then they say it's really expensive, but if need be, they can help with missing persons, abducted children, runaway teens, even human trafficking. They've been in business for 38 years. I am going to give this agency their greatest challenge ever. I am going to ask that they find something that Richard O'Sullivan has ever directed or produced. Now, let me give some of you some background on this. Richard O'Sullivan, or excuse me, R.J. O'Sullivan, is a longtime wrestling fan and has been a very vocal and active poster on an old wrestling message board. And we're going back over 20 years here. And he'll sometimes talk about things other than wrestling, which is fine. I mean, if you listen to Stick to Wrestling, you might know that I'm a Tennessee Volunteers fan. I like the Ramones. I love Grand Theft Auto V, right? Well, Richard would use that forum to discuss his career as a film director and producer. Well, Richard, as I mentioned maybe four weeks ago, I have come to suspect that you have been living a lie for over 20 years. Hear me out here. Because when you go to his IMDb page, there's a long stuff of list he's taking credit for. But when I try to find these actual movies, where are they? 
I can't buy them or watch them on YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime. There are no reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Richard, where are these TV shows? Where are these movies? You'd think I'd find one thing. And this is something I really wanted to see. He made it, or he says he made a movie about pro wrestling called Lucha Eliminato versus the state of Washington. He said it came out in 2016. I'm always interested in looking at a wrestling movie, right? And listen to this plot summary. Check this out. When a group of wrestlers come together to help a children's charity, the government tries to shut them down. However, the wrestlers defy orders and refuse to stop fighting. A children's charity. What a carny. What a hardcore freaking carny this guy is. But anyway, ah, director, producer, I can see Richard walking into a bar, walking up to a girl and saying, hey, baby, I'm a producer and a director. I can take you places. And the girl says, yeah, right. And I'm a ham sandwich and a phone booth. Please get your butt ugly self away from me. Richard, you know, one thing about Richard, he likes to try to insult me by calling me a pretty boy. Studio audience, what do you think of Richard O'Sullivan saying that about me? Yeah, you know, I'm projecting here, but me being a pretty boy, your words is probably better than going through life looking like something that just fell out of a dog's ass, Richard. Out of the ass of a chubby, pasty, pathetically unathletic, completely broke embarrassment of a dog, Richard. You don't like me for whatever reason. You want to have some kind of a war with me. Well, here it is. I mean, I just put the ball on a tee for you. And you can hit it 300 yards and make me look like a complete idiot. This can be your moment. All you have to do is show the world something that you've produced or directed. Something with your name in the credits as such. That's it. That's all you have to do to show me up. Okay, Mr. Producer, produce a link to one of your products. Okay, Mr. Director, direct me to where I can watch something you directed. Not some three-minute YouTube clip or a trailer. We're talking about a real movie here, Richard, okay? Show me up. Give me a link to something where I can buy something you've directed or produced. And no, don't send me to some 1995 GeoCity site or an email address, a real distributor, please. That's all you have to do to show me up and make a liar out of me. Not not a liar, but show the world how misinformed I am, Richard. Go ahead. I've put it on the tee for you. But in reality, I think I've blown your cover with minimal effort. You're caught, Richard. Maybe just admit the truth. We'll all have a laugh out of it. Just spin it as a small lie that snowballed into a big one. You know, you swallowed a spider to catch the fly, and now you're trying to swallow horses and cows, and it ain't working. You're finally caught, and it's time to just admit it. You're not a producer. You're not a director. I don't know what you do for money, but it ain't one of those two things. And I guess the overall point isn't about Richard O'Sullivan 
being a producer or a director. It's that you cannot believe a single word this person says. It's all a delusion. Everything about this guy is a big lie. And at bare minimum, we have this person attempting to defraud people when he's out soliciting cash for his non-existent film projects. He openly admits he did that to Mark Nolte. And I assure you, he did it with me. If he just admitted that, hey, I'm getting started, that would be one thing. But no, it's all a con game, and you can't believe a word this guy says. Richard, to your face, you are a bumbling internet phony, and you are getting away with this lie until you decided for no reason whatsoever to start a war with me. And now you're outed, you bumbling internet phony. You are now the object of ridicule, thanks to me, and your decision to start with me. Now, I open up Stick to Wrestling every week, having fun, saying a song was written for Stick to Wrestling, obviously a parody. When Sean Goodwin was part of this show, Sean was not a big fan of the opening, he said someday I'd run out of songs, and I immediately assured him that I wouldn't, because new music is being produced every way, and there's an endless back catalog, right? That brings me back to Richard O'Sullivan. Just like I will never run out of songs, I will never run out of material that you have provided for me to smack you around with. And I'm going to do it pretty much every week. This is what your Fridays are going to be like from now on. I know I've missed a few weeks. Hey, it's summer. Schedules are what they are. But like I said, pretty much every week. Richard, you are the Alex Jones of wrestling fans, except Jones figured out a way to actually monetize his fraudulence. It's like InfoWars, except I have the info that you're a phony and that your solicitations for cash to fund your imaginary product are a racket. InfoWars, you started a war and I'm spreading that info that it's a racket. Oh, speaking of songs, I want to thank our studio audience here in Na- the studios in Nashua, New Hampshire. You guys are great. Give yourselves a big round of applause, please. One of you guys mentioned that you and your friends had a song written and ready to go. You wanted to dedicate to Richard O'Sullivan. You want to do that today? Sir, you in the Washington General's jersey, you want to do it? Oh, yes. Okay, well, you guys get organized, and I'm going to be ready very shortly. One last thing. Dan Cherno, add him to the I Can't Believe a Word This Guy Says Club. Good old Crimson Mask, he had to have known that Richard O'Sullivan really wasn't a producer or a director, but he played along in an attempt to deceive everyone on that stupid message board. Just another carny. He had to have known for decades And he continued to enable this person. He continued to be part of the ruse. And he didn't do it to strangers. He did it to people he pretends to be friends with. And with that, that wraps up Stick to Wrestling. I want to once again thank Brett Nicholas, always an excellent guest. I want to thank Brian Last and Arcadian Vanguard for giving me this forum. And of course, as I do every week, I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman. Lou Kippelman will always be known as the producer who actually produces something. All right, you guys are ready. Hey, this has been a pr- production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Guys, are you ready to sing? Okay, they dedicate this song to Richard O'Sullivan. Guys, ready? On three, one, two, three. You suck. You suck.